Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of the MBIT Podcast, and I'm your host, Seamus Medan. I started this podcast at 15 years old in December of 2020 to bring personal finance education to the next generation. Now, I am 16 years old, and the podcast has evolved to interviewing entrepreneurs, VCs, GPs, and founders of public companies, all of which are designed to delve into insights that have not been shared elsewhere for the next generation of those interested in business. Recently, I ventured into the VC space as a venture fellow at Blitzscaling Ventures, which is backed by the co-founder of LinkedIn, and I am interviewing those farther along in their journey to learn more on everything that I and the audience is curious about. If any of the above sounds interesting to you, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend. And now, back to the show. So today, Yoav Vilner joins the podcast to discuss his journey from starting marketing to building the company Walnut.io, which is a SaaS platform that makes it easier for sales teams to create more engaging demos with clients like Adobe and Dell. They have raised over $56 million in funding from people like the CEO of Wix to Felicis Ventures. So first off, thank you for taking the time to join the show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thanks for having me. So before jumping into Walnut, let's go all the way back to the beginning when you began your career in marketing in Tel Aviv. You supervised and managed different marketing teams, including content marketing, PR, organic marketing, and some of the clients were unicorn companies. And you did that for a few years before deciding to build your own company, AppChamp. And you used growth hacking to drive hundreds of thousands of US-based readers within just a couple of months. And we've seen startups pour out millions of dollars to get this level of traction over longer periods of time. And over at the VC firm I work at, one of the ways we analyze a company, if it can grow quickly, is by taking advantage of network effects. And that's when the more users on the platform, it increases value for new users. For example, the relationship between customers and drivers with Uber or renters and customers with Airbnb. But what are some of the ways that you use growth hacking over at AppChamp? And then what are some of the ways early startups looking to grow their brand and presence and traffic can do the same? Yeah, those are several great questions. So yeah, AppChamp was was a kind of a venture I had reviewing apps right when it was the hottest thing around and app review publications were doing very well. Not sure where most of them are today. I think, you know, it's not so not so interesting to the audience today and probably everything happens on. But back then there was a couple of blogs that did it and they had lots of traffic. And so I, ju- I just started writing a couple of app reviews and then I learned about this thing called SEO and I just read a couple of guides, you know, some were by Google, some were by SEO Moz and some of them were, I think, even by HubSpot that just started off like their inbound marketing movement and release lots of uh, how to's. And I kind of got to know what SEO is. And I drove uh, hundreds of thousands of people to that blog, mostly around what you refer to as, as long tail keywords. So whenever I, I identified a new topic that could be interesting, it had sufficient volume. And I, I noticed that the competition within the search results was not too difficult. I would I would usually focus on that. And after a couple of very successful, I had one article that was driving me most of the traffic and it was doing so well that I got like inbounds from from a BBC reporter who wanted to 
to do a, a video episode about apps and they thought I was some sort of a guru or something up up until you know all kinds of really weird business opportunities honestly I took like five minutes to write it so you you can get very creative and get lots of traffic if you just research well Gotcha. I think your point on research is a really good one because even here for the show, a lot of the work behind the scenes is doing a lot of the cold emailing. But to make those cold emails effective and to make the shows as informational as possible, research is super important. And you have to do more research than, in this case, any other shows are willing to do. That way, you're providing new value and perspectives that aren't yet available. But now, fast forwarding, when did you first encounter the problem with traditional product demos? And when did it hit you that you were going to build a solution in an industry that hasn't yet been disrupted to this degree in decades? Right. So after I shut down that blog, just because I was still in my early 20s and I realized it's not making that much money for me to make it worthwhile, I, I was paying my writers more than the AdSense. The, you know, the ads were actually paying me back. So that was a nice gig to have around your early 20s. I launched what was the biggest and first tech marketing company, and I had like 600 startups working with us and with offices in Manhattan and London and Tel Aviv. And because I saw like we were doing all kinds of go-to-market stuff anywhere from, you know, plain, plain content marketing to HubSpot management and marketing automations. And then sometimes it was even some sort of an SDR operation. Like we, we let some people outreach on behalf of the company. And I noticed that, and we also had customers that kind of spent millions of dollars on campaigns. And I noticed they spend 90% of the money on getting prospects to see what the product product can do and then most mostly it broke and so that got me thinking you know something's really broken in b2b sales and b2b marketing and then i didn't really do anything with that thought i had another startup later on which saves kids from bullies on social media and then i was i was meeting a cto we wanted to build something and he came with the same problem of, of prospects in broken demos because he was a founder selling his products to enterprise companies and it usually broke and then he was managing lots of people at enterprise companies and seeing how the younger startups presented themselves and we we just started interviewing like 70 vp sales to validate because you got to make sure you're onto something not because you think it's a good idea but because your target audience is literally telling you yeah this is a major pain point and everything just happened from the Gotcha. And you mentioned issues in that space, especially with live product demos. They're happen to sub they're subject to human error. And that that means there's a higher cost for the consumer as well. But for example, Bill Gates broke Windows 98 a while back and Steve Jobs infamously see had trouble connecting to Wi-Fi. And more recently, Apple also had the issue with the Face ID unlock screen back when they unveiled the iPhone X. What are some of the ways that companies can start using Walnut to decrease the amount of issues they have with product demos? Right. So Walnut is a very simple product. And this is, I think it's one of the reasons we scaled so fast. We just launched a product a year and a half ago. And now we have about we have a couple of hundreds of, of enterprise companies, Fortune 500 companies and, and smaller startups. And how they use Walnut is the sales team just replicates using our product, easily replicates the front end of the entire SaaS product that they're trying to sell. They can highlight the main aspects of the product they want to convert into this, this new animal called an interactive demo. It sits on our cloud environment. So if your backend or your production broke, 
two minutes before an important call you have with, with Microsoft, showing them an important demo. The Walnut demo will just not break. You can create storylines that fit your specific target audience, the prospect, the needs. You can plug it in the CRM so the demo is auto-filled with data that is specific for that prospect. And you can just scale it. So if you do it once, you can just scale it to millions of prospects. Totally. And the way normal e-commerce works is with each additional step added to the sales process, it reduces the conversion rate for the company. That's why one-click checkout systems have been so popular as it reduces that friction. Now for Walnut, not only does it help reduce the friction of having to book a live product demo, even if you don't want to, but it also helps reduce the capital costs, especially for earlier startups trying to grow. Yeah, yeah. We have one customer in the cyberspace that told us we saved them about $3 million a year because they stopped putting most of their sales support and sales engineers just on trying to get demos not to break. And that is even, that's before even diving deep into the whole customization thing, which is a lot of resources. So yeah, it's saving them a lot of time. Wow, that's a, that's a pretty crazy. And when we're speaking of the numbers, how did the numbers of traditional sales or live product demos in terms of sales compare to that of Walnut in terms of conversion? Yeah, so we... I think that sales is kind of a cross-vertical problem. And so you get a lot, of, a lot of different benchmarks and it's kind of individual to specific companies with their specific prospects. But we heard we heard anything from 5x more conversion rates with Walnut, which is kind of massive. And even from our marketing use case, so sometimes CMOs take that interactive demo and they embed it on their different assets and they, they drive that traffic there to see that interactive demo, like a try before you buy type of thing which naturally increases the conversions because you know what you're going to buy. And it's not, you didn't make a buying decision based on some banner or a video. And so they're also using it for that purpose. And we also heard of like six or seven X more conversions in that case. Gotcha. And there's a stat out there that around 94% of website first impressions are based on visuals and design and the UI and the UX of the website. What are some of the ways that businesses can take advantage of making a well-suited design that fits well with their company to demonstrate their business in a positive and forward-thinking light? So one of the main things we saw when we just started off, so the VPs of sales were kind of concerned about what if we give salespeople too much freedom to customize and edit and kind of, it's not even designing because you're working on a product that already exists, but just imagine a, imagine a Wix editor when you can, you can drag and drop and create all yep. kinds of customizations. And so they were, they were concerned about what if they take it too far and they make it look different than what it is. What we found in reality is that the salespeople actually reduce some of the visuals. So if you want to make it more likely to convert, you need to kind of reduce the noise so you can eliminate some features that doesn't that don't meet your, your specific prospect use case. You can change the name, you can change the logo, you can do pretty much anything to make them see the specific value they can get from your so it's like it's like making the UI more basic than what it really is. And you mentioned Wix. Now the CEO of Wix backed you guys and you have some other really big people that have backed you early on, including Ron Conway. What are some of the ways that startups can really get bigger people involved and back their startups, especially at an earlier stage? That's very impressive. 
Right. So we're very, very lucky to be working with those people. Like you mentioned, Ron Conway and the CEO of Wix and a president at Salesforce and a VP at Google and, and a VP at HubSpot. And I think eventually, like, first of all, you need to you, you need to have like a founder market fit to get those people. They need to think you're going to create a new category. They need to think you're going to create your own landscape. And so if my background was cyber and I was doing this, I would not get their I would not get their investments, but I come from so many years of like go to market and marketing and growth and raising funds for other ventures. And, and it, it just made sense to those people. If you notice, there's also like a professional connection, like we're building an editor and Wix is an editor, HubSpot, a senior manager, a manager at HubSpot. It's kind of the same go to market as we have. It sells people. Um, so you need to reach out to people that are kind of within what you're trying to build. If you're a first-time founder or a third-time founder, that makes a lot of difference, right? In terms of it's going to be easy or not. When I was in my 20s, I was just working a lot on my network. I was giving a lot of value to investors and not asking anything back. For like six or seven years, I was just helping out and connecting people and not really asking for anything. in And you need to have a strong founding team. If your founding team is strong, you know, like literally the first two or three people, that's also going to help convince those angel investors, even before a v, an actual VC has gave you the first million. And you mentioned a really good point that we've actually brought up on the podcast before, which is product founder fit or company founder fit. And it's something that Spencer Raskoff has brought up when he's currently building out Picasso, which allows you to invest or purchase fractional shares of second homes. And before that, he was over at Zillow. Now, if he had no experience in real estate, I don't know if it would have been as compelling, especially for investors, to back that company. What would be the importance of founder product fit? I think that's kind of like when you're meeting investors, you have to to reduce like the ob objections they have. And so, if you've sold your previous company for five hundred million dollars, that's a great that's a great first step, right? They're going to believe in you much better than other people. But if you haven't, you just need to show that your background fits what you're trying to solve, that the pain that you're trying to solve has actually hurt you before, like you've seen it happen. It's not some idea you dreamt of and you just decided to, to, to raise funds because it sounds like a good idea. If they feel it's something that really grew inside of you and you're actually really, really, you, you really want to solve it, not just try and build a company around it, then I think you can get a lot of investor interest much more than coming up with a random idea and go out to raise funds. Totally. And over here at the show, we provide an outlet for founders, VCs, and uh, people in business to share their stories with the next generation of those interested in business. Now, storytelling is also a really important part of sales. And how can startups be more effective in storytelling uh, for sales? Right. So you need to tell a story. I have to tell you that I have some sort of a problem with like, there's a full-time job now being called storytellers. I've seen it in some companies. I don't think it should be a full-time job. Like, I don't know how you measure, like what's the KPI of a storyteller within the company. <laughs> you, you just gotta, you know, you just gotta do it as part of the DNA, like as part of the culture. Yeah. Like your salespeople need to be telling the right story and talking about the value, the problems that the prospects have, not the features that you're selling your marketing people need to be oriented towards like brand and storytelling on that front. If you're a founder, like you're always selling, you always have to tell a story and you have to tell a good vision for the founding team. That's going to believe in you before you raise your money. And it doesn't end. 
Like every conversation you have is a story that you need to tell. But I always tell, like, I, I tell people, like, don't, don't think you're solving this problem if you're hiring someone for that role. Like, just, just kind of educate your entire team as a culture, as a DNA, to tell good stories. Yeah, that's a great point. And as we wrap it up here, what are some of your takeaways for businesses who are not yet using Walnut? Uh, I think there's only two types of companies at this point, uh, Walnut customers and companies that will be Walnut's customers. So if we haven't partnered yet, we will. Eventually, this thing is turning into a huge landscape for a reason. It's like literally the new age of of selling your product. Even Gartner released a couple of reports recently and said that interactive demos are the next big thing. And now we're entering a recession. You need to focus on your sales. So, you know, you need to give it a shot. Absolutely. Well, thank you for taking the time to join the show. It was a pleasure to have you on today. And I look forward to having you back on sometime in the future. Thanks. It was a pleasure. All right. And for all the listeners who are interested in learning more about Walnut, feel free to check out the episode links in the description below. And if you enjoyed the episode, make sure to drop a five-star review. Look forward to seeing you in the next episode.